Murder in the Rain, where each week Emily Rowney, Alicia Holland, and Josh McCullough tell true crime stories of the Pacific Northwest. Murder in the Rain contains graphic content. Listener discretion is advised. A turn of luck had led the Cowden family to the Carberry Creek area for a last-minute camping trip. The young family of four were delighted to have the time to indulge in the stunning nature Jackson County offered them. They didn't have big plans. They were just excited to have time with their two young children to fish, to swim. The cherry on top was the plan of wrapping up the weekend with a dinner at Mrs. Cowden's mother's home. For unknown reasons, the family never showed up for that meal. And now, 50 years later, their case remains mostly unsolved, although an early parolee has always held the most suspicion as being the person responsible for what happened to the young family. Today, I'll be telling you the story of the Cowden family, Richard, Belinda, David, and Melissa, and how Dwayne Lee Little may have been their killer. Elise Canaday, who often went by Ruth, was ecstatic when she heard from her daughter, Belinda June. She was calling to say that their weekend plans had changed, and she, along with her husband and two children, would be out camping in her area and were hoping they could be able to stop by her place to have supper before finishing their drive home. Of course, her family would be welcome. Ruth couldn't wait until Sunday night. She loved her daughter, Belinda, who was 22 years old. She had married Richard Cowden, who was six years her senior, back in 1972. It had been less than three years since the young lovers ran off to Reno to get married. Even though the bride and groom were only 20 and 25 years old, respectively, they weren't just running off to elope for funsies. They were already parents to David James Phillips Cowden, who had been scandalously born out of wedlock when Belinda was just 17 years old though the rush to get those papers signed was more likely related to the fact that Belinda was six months pregnant. In March 1974, the family welcomed baby Melissa Dawn. The naivete of their youth probably played a part in Belinda and Richard's tenacious drive to make their relationship work through those first few years. Richard, or Rich, was a hard worker. He loved the family he had created and remained close to his extended family. Now a family of four, Richard continued his job as a logging truck driver in White City, Oregon, an unincorporated town about 250 miles south of Portland as the crow flies. It's literally a small town with a total square mileage of 1.9 miles. White City, is is that here in Oregon? It is. That's a pretty telling name. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's not shocking. There's one in, in up by Seattle, too, called White Center. Oh, boy. I wonder if it's maybe the same it's, founding fathers. Maybe it's the frothy white caps of the roaring waters. Let's hope. Mm. The unexpected camping trip came thanks to a malfunctioning truck. Richard had planned on spending the extended weekend using his boss's truck to haul gravel to his driveway at home, then spreading it out. When the truck broke down, there was no chance of the gravel expedition taking place, so another option was suggested. Why don't we take the kids camping? 
This was an easy choice as the Cowdens loved to go camping. They even had a 1956 Ford pickup they kept on hand for such occasions. As Richard gathered bedding and supplies, Belinda packed a picnic and the children, along with some diapers, milk, fishing poles, swimsuits, and their basset hound, Droopy. As soon as they were packed up, they were on the road. As frequent campers, they had a favorite spot along the Applegate River. After making the hour drive from just outside Medford to the tiny town of Copper, they drove up Carberry Creek Road, a place you might remember from two episodes ago when I was telling you the story of Russell Brimsky, another mistakenly paroled killer who had dumped the body of Betty Ritchie off that road. Driving another 40 minutes north, Richard parked the truck along the road above their campsite at the river. It was perfect. The car was close, but not in the way. There was a picnic table right at the little creek. It was idyllic. In one direction, you could see the roads to drive off on. In the other, miles and miles of untouched forest and rocky wilderness. To give you a better idea of this location, if you're looking at a map of Oregon, there's the desert of the east and then the greenery of everything west of the Cascade Mountain Range. If you went straight down from Portland at the northern border, you would come to Copper at the southern border. And that's where the I-5 and the 199 split, and they kind of make a rainbow to the east and west. And right smack dab in the middle of that, you would find the Applegate River and the campgrounds the Cowdens went to. The town of Copper is both appropriately and ironically named as it used to be a bustling location for copper and gold mining. By the 1970s, the hustle, bustle, and most importantly, minerals had faded. Like so many similar areas whose economy had crumbled, there remained little more than a few roads, homes, and a corner store in Copper. One of those homes was occupied by Belinda's mother, Ruth. She lived less than a mile from the campsite, and she was looking forward to the not-as-often-as-she-would-like family dinner, which had been planned for that Sunday, September 1st. The grandmother was ecstatic to get time with the family. She knew how quickly the joys of summer were going to soon fade into fall and winter. In just a few months, they would all be celebrating the first Christmas with baby Melissa. David was becoming his own little man. Ruth couldn't wait for the noise of the children to fill her home. But she would have to wait. Until that dinner date a few days away, the family had simple plans. They were going to lounge at the water and enjoy nature before getting back to the grind. Although it was comforting to know that if they did have an emergency or the baby needed to get out of the elements, they had a home to go to. David and Droopy ran and played as a boy and his pup are wont to do. The only concern the parents had about a young boy frolicking around that area was the occasional abandoned mine shaft some of which were hard to see due to nature reclaiming them. As Belinda prepared lunch on the camp stove, Richard was fishing for their dinner and was soon joined by his son who wanted to take a crack at it. The family enjoyed a calm, quiet night. Around 9 a.m. the morning of September 1st, Richard and David walked about a mile to the closest, well, the only market. They bought a carton of milk, believed to be for Melissa, and walked back to the campground where the girls were waiting. A mile away, Ruth started preparing for dinner as the day went on. She hadn't heard from Belinda, but that wasn't surprising. They were in the great outdoors, and this was way before cell phones. If they needed to get in touch, their best bet would have been to just walk to her house. Anxiously, Ruth waited for dinner time to roll around so she could get to those kids. Then it got to be a little later than she had expected them. Then later. And later. When it was well past when they should have been having dinner, she started to feel uneasy. She and Belinda were always communicating, 
There was no way the family had packed up and headed home, simply forgetting to go to her mother's. Belinda was far too thoughtful to do something like that. It got to be too late for Ruth to not feel concerned. Luckily, with the family staying just down the street and going to their regular spot, she knew where to go look for them. Or at least she thought she did. There are conflicting stories here. One report says that Ruth went by herself. Another says she went to the market where the boys had been that morning, and after learning from the clerk they had stopped by, the two of them went to the campsite. So it might have been just Ruth or Ruth and the store clerk. Either way, Ruth pulled up to the family's truck as it sat on Carberry Creek Road. It was Richard's truck, and it was facing towards the road slash general store. This was a habit of his. In case the battery died on the clunker, he could get it rolling and hopefully get it started. Which, I don't know about you guys, but I kind of love finicky car tricks. <laughs> like, oh yeah, you can borrow my car. If it makes like a screeching sound, just kick it three times on the bumper and then it'll <laughs> run fine for four I've hours. I've never experienced that and that would give me anxiety. So, <laughs> nope, I don't love those. <laughs> Walking down from the road to the campsite, it seemed the only thing missing were the people. They hadn't packed up. They hadn't forgotten to stop by on their way home. On the table was a half-empty carton of milk, the one from that morning's outing. Dishes and silverware were stacked neatly, as though they had just been cleaned in the plastic dishpan that was full of now cold water. The camp stove was still assembled and ready to use. The truck keys, Belinda's purse, and the diaper bag were also on the table. Fishing poles leaned against a tree, just waiting to make another catch. Worry, fear, adrenaline, it was all starting to pump through Ruth's veins. She started to call out everyone's names. She got no answer. Taking stock of what remained, Ruth went from wanting to give her daughter a what for to wondering what on earth was going on. It was like they had truly vanished into thin air. But certainly there was some reasoning for this. Maybe they had just wandered off and even gotten lost, and they just needed some help. Looking through the clothes that remained at the site, it appeared the family was most likely all wearing swimsuits. Okay, maybe they had gone swimming in the creek and something happened. Hoping to stumble upon them, Ruth started walking up the creek while playing scenarios out in her head. What if one of the kiddos had fallen in and they needed to do some sort of rescue? But even if the baby had fallen in, the water was so low, it would have been nearly impossible for the adults to have drowned. They literally could have just stood up and been fine. As she continued walking, she came upon Richard's wallet. $23 in cash remained inside. Next to the wallet, his expensive watch. There was also an open pack of smokes. They were Belinda's brand. Okay, they hadn't gone swimming in the creek. Maybe they went for a hike. But the area was so overrun with blackberry bushes, their skin would have been torn up by the thorns. Swimsuits would not have sufficed. At a loss, Ruth sat at the table. She listened for any sound a family of four would be making in the woods. Her desperate ears only picked up the ripples of the creek and the wind in the trees. Then she remembered. Droopy. Where the hell was the dog? Did he have the same sense of lassie, knowing to go get help if they needed it? If someone or something took them, why would they also take a dog? Time ticked by. As it got closer to 8 p.m., the sun started going down. There was nothing more Ruth could do except to call the sheriff for help. Sheriff Dwayne Franklin got the call, and right away, three officers from the Oregon State Police arrived at the campground. After evaluating the scene, they brought another possibility to the table. That area is wild, untamed country. 
there are coyotes, cougars, snakes, bears. Perhaps one of them was injured and they somehow, without their truck, got to a local hospital. That theory was promising but very quickly debunked when the local hospitals were all called and they had no one admitted that fit the description of any Cowden family member. Darkness of the night swept over the area and the officers knew there wouldn't be much they could do until the morning. It wouldn't be until about 6.30 they would have the light they needed to work with, so an officer was left to secure the scene while the others went home to plan a full-scale search in the morning. Before it could begin, the first sign of life appeared on Carberry Creek Road. It was Droopy. He was okay, but he was alone. Thank God Droopy's okay. I know, right? I hate it. And I have a picture of Droopy, too. It turned out the first sighting of Droopy was at 2.30 p.m. on the 1st. He was then seen again about 6 p.m., a few miles from the campsite. Then he wound up at that same market around 3 a.m. Once he was tracked down and caught, officers processed the dog and tried to figure out where he had been. They even kept his paw prints on file in case tracks were found on a trail. The other officers began what would become one of the largest searches in the history of Oregon. Search teams were assembled from the Explorer Scouts, Oregon State Police, U.S. Forest Service, Jackson County Sheriffs, and the Oregon National Guard Alpine Team. Wow. Besides the teams on the ground, there were planes and helicopters, all looking for signs of the family via traditional methods and infrared photos. Later, Lieutenant Mark Kieser with the OSP would say he regretted that the full-scale investigation didn't start right away and that they essentially lost that first day. If there had been blood, broken objects, or any sign of violence, the search may have started as soon as Ruth discovered the family missing. Now, if there had been a perpetrator, they had a full day lead on the investigation. The search went on and on. Eventually, 12 detectives were working on it. The search was officially called off on the 7th, but a task force was put together, and for weeks they were headquartered at the campsite. The Alpine team was instrumental as they were able to scale the rocky terrain, even vertically, searching a much wider area than teams on foot. As they searched the earth for clues, they kept an eye to the sky, looking out for buzzards or other gatherings of birds as they might be surrounding a potential meal. The search wasn't limited to the campground or the surrounding woods. Every trail in the area was checked, as well as every road, every nook and cranny that existed in a 25-mile radius surrounding the campsite. Another team was assigned to the campsite itself. They were on their hands and knees, sifting the dirt for clues. Maybe if they had found a button or a bullet, they would get some idea as to what had happened. Those abandoned mines were checked, at least the ones that could be found. The family could have been on a walk and not seen an opening and fell in but nothing was found in any of the mines. All sides of every waterway for miles was checked. If they had fallen in and all drowned, at least one of their bodies would have been caught in the debris by then. Dogs were brought in, both blood and cadaver. After being given the sense, the dogs would begin sniffing, and it seemed like a promising start. In all cases, they would quickly be running in circles, losing the scent. With all of those people searching diligently for weeks, not one clue was found. No tire tracks, not even a single footprint. They were at a loss. Detectives started to create scenarios to see if they could make it make sense. Okay, so maybe someone came upon the family. They were secluded, so a robbery. Except that the watch, purse, and cash was all left behind. 
Okay, could they have all been kidnapped? Yes, but there had been no attempts made by anyone to request a ransom. What if someone found Belinda, who was, as Anne Rice kind of grossly said, a lovely young woman, and she was in her swimsuit and alone with a five-month-old? Could she have been the target of a sexual attack? Possibly, but that wouldn't explain what happened to David and Richard. By that point, the idea of an alien abduction didn't seem all that far-fetched. In fact, it was starting to seem like the only plausible explanation. One of the only clues police were working with was that hikers had reported seeing a hound on a trail on September 1st, about six miles upstream from the camp. He had been alone and was clearly headed somewhere. That really only helped to narrow down a direction, but only slightly. Detectives knew that they would need to look into the family's personal life. One of the only remaining ideas was that the family was struggling with a secret financial issue or an unknown fidelity or even drug issue. Could there have been a murder-suicide plot, or was all of this a setup for them to disappear from their lives? Just a hoax as part of their escape plan. Checking the family's home in White City, Belinda's veggie garden was ready to be harvested, the freezer was full of meat for the winter, David's bedroom had very recently been redecorated, all of which looked like signs of a family that was pretty settled into their lives and not planning on running away. Their finances looked perfectly fine, their costs were covered by Richard's paycheck. Belinda was a happy housewife and mother. Checking in on Richard's work life, he had never had any issues, he was a good employee, and he had no interpersonal issues with coworkers. Questioning friends and family, the Cowdens' marriage was viewed as being a very happy one. They were young but devoted. In fact, things had only seemed to have gotten better after the birth of Melissa. Detectives knew that in that small town, if there had even been a hint of an issue— the entire town would have been aware of it. Besides a lack of motive, anyone who knew Richard knew he would not have left without telling his family. Both he and Belinda spoke often with their parents, and they were all very close. Richard's brother Terry had passed away in 1968 from cancer when he was just 25 years old. Richard knew how heartbreaking that was for his family, and he would never do something to elicit that kind of pain. In fact, on the day the family disappeared, Richard's other brother, Robert, was being told test results of his own. Thankfully, he was cancer-free. Lieutenant Kieser wasn't on the hiking trails for searches, but he was doing the necessary detective work. In all, he interviewed 150 people. As the search teams began to dwindle, family members, especially those who were hunters and trappers, started searches of their own. It would soon be hunting season, and that meant more people in the woods and possibly in areas that hadn't been searched yet. So a $2,000 reward was offered for information that led to the location of the family. Postings were hung, a letter to the Medford Mail Tribune written by Richard's sister was printed, asking hunters to keep an eye out for anything unusual in the woods. In part, her letter read, Please be on alert for anything that could be connected to a man a woman, a five-year-old child, or a five-month-old baby. Even though we try to not let our hopes dwindle that they will be found alive, we ask that you will even check freshly turned piles of earth. We will truly appreciate any clue or help that some hunter may find. During this time, eight women were missing in the Oregon and Washington area. Several of those women would be found to be victims of Ted Bundy. So there were concerns that there was a serial killer on the loose, but taking a whole family wasn't anyone's M.O. at the time. 
While questioning locals, a man claimed to have spoken with a couple on September 1st. When he was shown a photo of the Cowdens, he realized that he had interacted with someone else. However, the police wanted to know about that family that he had talked to. All he could offer was that they said that they were visiting from Los Angeles. Now, remember, this was the mid-70s. This was way before the Internet. So it wasn't like they could just Google basic info and find out who these people were. But by some detectiving miracle, police actually found that couple. They asked the man and woman about their visit and what, if anything, they saw during their time there. They had arrived to a campground in the same area as the Cowdens in the middle of the morning on the 1st, just a few hours after that milk run. By the time they had settled in, the family was already gone. However, they did witness something peculiar. They said, Two men and a woman pulled up in a pickup truck, though. They acted like they were waiting for us to leave, and frankly, they made us nervous, so we moved on. They may have been the last people to see Richard and Belinda alive and the only witness as to who their aggressor was. In an effort to get more help, 200 people signed a petition asking Oregon Senator Mark Hatfield to appeal to the FBI for help. He appreciated everyone's concern for the Cowdens, but there had been no sign or implication the family had been taken across state lines, so there wasn't anything the FBI really could do. Additionally, he didn't want to set the precedent that any missing person would lead to involving the FBI. Kind of a, if I do it for you, then I have to do it for everybody attitude. Tips, of course, were flooding in. Not all were helpful. Detective Richard Davis, who worked on the case, said in an interview, We got some of the strangest, most bizarre calls. Tips where they were and what they were doing. They were seen in Seattle. They were seen in San Francisco. They weren't. Hunting season came and went. No one reported finding anything that may have belonged to the family. In early December, a trooper from Medford and another from Grants Pass were assigned to be the full-time team working on the case, mostly focusing on interviewing residents in the areas surrounding the campsite. They would also be rechecking previously searched areas now that it had been a few months since the initial explorations. John Paul Knowles could have a podcast dedicated to his life as a serial killer. For now, I'll just be summarizing his Wikipedia page, and I'll probably end up covering him for a Patreon episode. The long and the short of it was that he was first arrested when he was 19 years old. Paul got a pen pal lady friend to pay his legal bills, and when he met up with her, she caught his vibe and was like, mm, no thank you. He then went back to Florida, no surprise that that was his motherland, where he stabbed a bartender. He then picked a lock and escaped jail. Paul claimed to have killed over 35 people, but only a few could be confirmed via a confession tape he had sent to his lawyer. According to that confession, hours after the escape, he accidentally killed Alice Curtis when he was robbing her home and she choked on the gag he had put on her. In Georgia, he killed 13-year-old Ima Jean Sanders. There was a possible false confession regarding the unsolved disappearances of 11-year-old Lillian Anderson and 7-year-old Maylette Anderson. A few weeks later, in early August, he robbed and strangled Marjorie Howie. Next was 24-year-old Kathy Pierce, whom he also strangled. On September 3rd, William Bates in Ohio disappeared. His strangled body was found that October. 
driving away in another of the many vehicles he had stolen. Paul then killed 62-year-old Emmett Johnson and 59-year-old Lois Johnson as they were camping in Nevada. 42-year-old Eben Hicks was then found sexually assaulted and strangled in Texas. Anne Jean Dawson was killed after traveling with Paul. Her body was recovered in the Mississippi River three years later. Mid-October, he sexually assaulted and strangled Karen and Don Wine, a mother and daughter. Doris Housie was then shot with her husband's gun. Paul went back to Florida, where he was pulled over for driving another stolen vehicle. He was given a warning. November in Georgia, Paul stabbed 45-year-old Carcel Carr Sr. and strangled his 15-year-old daughter. Back to Florida, he abducted 32-year-old Barbara Maybe Abel. She was raped but released and wrote a book about her experience. On November 16th, Paul was stopped again for driving a different stolen car, but Paul wrestled with the officer, eventually getting the gun in his possession. Using the police car with a captive officer in the back, Paul pulled over another vehicle and kidnapped 29-year-old driver James Meyer. All three got into James's car, and Paul drove them into a wooded area before handcuffing them to a tree and shooting them in the head. Jesus. And this, I don't know if you caught that time. We're talking about three, four months. Yeah. That this, this is, is just a full spree. Yikes. Word spread about the missing officer and roadblocks were put up. Paul blew through them. A car chase led to a foot chase and an exchange of gunfire. He was eventually captured the following day by two civilians. A month later, on December 18th, Paul was handcuffed in the backseat of a police cruiser with two officers in the front. They were driving him to the Georgia Bureau of Investigation. Before they could get there, Paul reached forward and tried to take one of the officer's guns. The chaos in the vehicle led to swerving and firing. The battle was brought to an abrupt end when police shot Paul in the chest three times, killing him instantly. So why did I just give you the rundown on Paul Knowles? Well, he had come up as a possible suspect for the Cowden family case. It was in the summer of 74 that he was on this horrific crime spree. Sure, he was mostly in the Southeast, but it sounded like someone bad enough that if he had, for some reason, been in that area, he could have easily committed whatever crimes may have taken place. In late December of 74, that lead officially fizzled out. Paul had first landed on Oregon State Police's radar when a receipt for gas was found, and it did place him in southern Oregon in early September. With his history of shooting, stabbing, strangling, robbing, raping, and related victims, he could have easily done something to the entire family. But then other receipts were tracked down. They showed that Paul had left Indiana on September 4th, four days after the Cowdens went missing. And the Oregon receipts showed him at Rogue River and Sutherland, which is about an hour south of Eugene, on the 7th and 8th. So while it had been exciting that this monstrous man had been so close, the time just did not match up and he was cleared. His lawyer would go on to tell police that before his death, Paul never mentioned a family or the Cowden name. And this guy wasn't shy about talking about the deeds he had done. So the police were at yet another dead end. Then there was 26-year-old James Arthur Dewan. He was wanted for questioning regarding the stabbing death of 24-year-old David Sanchez from Eureka, California. James was found in Iowa after police did a random sweep of hitchhikers. It was also thought he could have been to blame, if it hadn't been Paul Knowles, for the death of another California man, Leland Bergstrom. Wait, so they were doing a sweep 
because of the, this case? No, this was in Iowa, and it sounds like they were just doing... Oh, they just do that. That they maybe picked up several hitchhikers or found a group of them somewhere, and then they just ran them. Interesting. I've never heard of that. I hadn't either, and so I'm going to be looking into that more. But yeah, so it sounds like they found each person and then ran their info, and they're like, bing, you are wanted for questioning, my friend. Interesting. Yeah. It was also thought that he could have been to blame, if it hadn't been Paul Knowles, for the death of another California man, Leland Bergstrom, who had been found shot to death in southern Oregon the day after the family disappeared. After being arrested, James was brought in for a polygraph. It was more than just a yes or no questionnaire. The Oregon State Police monitored as California public defenders conducted what became an all-day process and nearly a full psych evaluation. Yikes. He passed, and it was clear he had nothing to do with the deaths of Leland or David or anything to do with the Cowdens. What a traumatic day for him. That would be a lot. (laughs) But also, if somebody wants to question you, maybe don't run away to Iowa. (laughs) Just go answer their questions, and then you're cleared. (laughs) That's the moral of the story here. But I don't trust a polygraph, so... I know. Just call a lawyer. Fall turned into winter. The Cowdens' first holiday season as a family of four came and passed. The freezing temperatures at the start of 1975 halted any progress as far as searches or evidence recovery. Their home in White City sat dark, cold, and empty as their campsite was buried under snow. Spring, as it always does, brought new hope. As the rains of February and March washed away the snow, new life started blooming. Trails were open, and yet there were still no signs. Hoping to strike it rich, two prospectors visiting the area from Forest Grove made their way about six and a half miles upstream from the fateful camp. It was April 12, 1975. It had been seven and a half months since the Cowdens had been seen. The men knew not of the disappearances, so they weren't keeping their eyes out for anything more than gold. The trail they were on was just shy of two miles long, but it also ran through and up the rough, rocky hills of the area. Coming to a stop, one of the men noticed something out of the ordinary. It appeared to be a bone. Continuing their walk, now with more alert eyes, they spotted another bone. Following the macabre trail, they came upon what appeared to be an adult skeleton tied to a tree. Oh, God. From that starting point, it appeared animals had scattered the bones in every direction, about 150 feet. Having no idea who this person was or why they had perished being tied to a tree, the men turned around, ran back to their truck, and drove to town where they called for help. Soon after that 3.30 p.m. call, Jackson County sheriffs showed up to the area they had become so familiar with. As quickly as the officers could, they hiked the six miles in to where the bones had been found. Examining what was assumed to be a femur, the length led them to believe it had belonged to an adult male. This had to have been Richard Cowden. Dr. William Brady, a medical examiner from Salem, was called in, as were other technical experts more well-versed in processing such a difficult and unusual scene. The rest of that first day was spent gathering all evidence possible. When the sun rose the next morning, everyone was back. Now they knew Richard had been killed. But where was Belinda and the kids? Two hours into their search, around 9.30 a.m., they had their answer. An opening in the mountainside was discovered. A small cave, the opening of which had been camouflaged by Mother Nature via plants and rocks. The opening wasn't just blocked, but a rock had nearly sealed it, 
which made investigators think it could have been placed there by someone. It was either that or a very well-aimed landslide. Moving the rock away, officers peered inside. First, they saw more bones. Shining a light, small bones were found along with a larger skeleton. It was bigger than the other two in the cave, but smaller than Richard's. It also had dark brown hair, as Belinda did. The other small bones were scattered, unable to stay in what you would call a skeletal form, but the bones were consistent with being that of a small child and a newborn, David and Melissa. Just seven miles from the campsite, the Cowden family was finally found, and the answer of what happened to them was at least answered. They had been murdered. The area was closed off and processed. All the evidence detectives had been so desperate for for all that time was now in front of them. Their clothing, a carrier for the baby, the few items they had with them when they were forced to make their death march, it was all bagged. The earth was again sifted. Metal detectors were brought in. The only thing found, though small, was important. It was a bullet that paired with a Marlin brand rifle. It seemed at first glance that Belinda and David had been shot, so the priority with the new search was to find additional bullets, casings, or even better, the gun itself. For a brief moment, it was considered that, given the bizarre setup, Richard may have forced his family to walk up the mountain before shooting them and hiding their bodies in a cave. That idea didn't last long, and not just because that wasn't in Richard's character. If he had been able to somehow bind himself to the tree before taking his own life, the gun should have been at his side, but it was never found. The only logical explanation was that a third, perhaps even a fourth party, stumbled upon the family. Without robbing them, they forced them to walk. Richard was large, so he was tied to the tree, where he was either eliminated as a threat or forced to stay alive to watch his family be executed and possibly assaulted as he helplessly watched. Once all the remains were sent in for autopsy, dental records confirmed what officials already knew. The bodies were officially declared to be those of Richard, Belinda, David, and Melissa Cowden. I have to say, like, never have I been thankful that there were bullets found because I was picturing them stuck in there and not being able to get out and, like, slowly dying. Oh, yeah, no. They... God. That would be horrendous. I mean, it's horrendous. All of it is, but that's... Yes, that's torturous. Torturous would be the better Mm -hmm. word, yeah. Five-year-old David and 22-year-old Belinda had been killed by multiple 22 caliber bullets. Melissa's death was caused by severe blunt force head trauma. Richard's cause could not be narrowed down. None of his bones showed signs of having been struck with a bullet or scratched with a knife, but that didn't mean that that hadn't happened. It just couldn't be confirmed because the soft tissue that would have displayed such a wound had decomposed. He also could have been strangled or left on the tree to succumb to the elements or animals. Though Richard's remains were of no help, the location was. It was believed that only a local or someone who had spent a lot of time in that area would have known about the cave that became a tomb. When the news broke that the family had been found, albeit the worst-case scenario, a volunteer from one of the original search parties contacted the sheriff's office. They claimed to have known of that cave and said they had checked it when they participated in the search. Obviously, nothing had been found at that time. Lieutenant Kieser was certain that this was a simple mix-up, that this guy was thinking of a different cave. There were so many up there and mines. There was just no way of telling. He was merely confused. 
To be sure, Kieser invited the man to join him for a walk in the woods. He asked him to take him to the cave that he thought the bodies were being reported as being found in. Sure enough, he walked him right to that exact Whoa, cave. How scary. was this possible? Had the bodies been somewhere else for the fall and winter, then moved there in the spring? But that wouldn't account for Richard's skeleton being scattered so far out. And, you know, would there have even been anything on his body? You know, not to be graphic, but if he had been somewhere else and then they moved him, I don't know that the animals would have scattered that. Yeah, you know they, what I'm saying? Yeah, they would. But yeah, I, I feel like it's highly likely he was there longer. Right. And on top of that, how could the perpetrator even tie a falling apart skeleton to a tree mm -hmm. seven, six months later? Yeah, that's not, I don't think. And so many sense. questions. Why go through the trouble of doing that? Why not just lay it down to be scattered or hide it in the cave with the other bodies? Why not lay all of their bodies out to be scattered? It was very confusing. And was it, was, were they sure this person was telling the truth, though? He like, yes, took he them, found the right cave, but maybe he knew the cave and didn't check it. He would have had to have some inside information because as far as reports went, it was found in a cave off this trail. Wow. So he would have had to know where that cave, if he was leading the officer, he yeah. would have had to know that that cave was there. That just throws such a wrench in things. And unfortunately, the question surrounding that cave's search history is just one of many that, I hate to say, are going to go unanswered. The prospectors received the $2,000 reward for their discovery. The pot had grown over the months, so $1,697 remained available for anyone that could provide information that would lead to an arrest in the case. Police now knew the family's final resting place and knew that they were looking for a killer, but as far as potential evidence went, there wasn't any. It couldn't be confirmed that anyone in the family had or hadn't also been the victim of a sexual assault, but police worked the case as if that was a possibility. They decided to take a look at local men who were registered sex offenders, recently released mental health patients, and they requested a list of recent parolees from the Oregon Board of Parole. The old trifecta. Exactly. Their plan was to question the men on all of those lists and find out their alibis until they found someone that piqued their interest. No one stood out from the sex registry. Everyone was questioned and there wasn't anything alarming. Same went for the psych patients. Nothing that seemed like a lead. Then they read the list of names of recent parolees. Not only was there a name that they were surprised to see on it, but the name was of a man they felt was more than capable of committing these crimes. That name was Dwayne Lee Little. And why was it surprising to see his name on the parole list? Well, because Dwayne was notorious for being, at one point, the youngest person ever sent to the Oregon State Prison. And he had been sent there on a murder charge only eight years prior. Next week, I'll be telling you about the crimes that led to Dwayne being sent to prison and the flaws that had him being let out to do more harm to people after a handful of years behind bars. Boy, we're all looking forward to that. I don't know if this is a spoiler or not. The Cowden case remains unsolved. Because so, they couldn't definitively close So it. next week is really just more the history of Dwayne and why he was sent to prison and why they kind of... Um, Believe that. You had one recently where it's like, well, the, the case isn't solved. But we but think we solved it. It's yeah. solved. There's um, only so much you can do without that one clue that, that one brings it all thing. together. 
But I'm looking forward to sharing that story with you guys. If you want to know more about the story, this is kind of a notorious Oregon case that I was not aware of until doing the show. But I never knew the details. Yeah, I had kind of seen it's always on those lists like strangest Oregon crimes or most confusing unsolved cases. Mm -hmm. Um, It's always on those lists. And I had never really looked into it, but it is a wild one. Um, Anne Rule's book, But I Trusted You, which is uh, an anthology. There's many stories in it, but her coverage of this case is in that, as is um, in Margaret LaPlante's Oregon's Most Notorious Crimes. So if you're wanting to read a little bit more about it, those were books that I used. But it's it's interesting because these these two episodes are really going to be so different because this one is just this mystery of what on earth happened. And it's so weird. Like, did that cave get searched? Yeah. Did the bodies get moved? Because if they if it didn't get searched, like, what was the point of him saying so? Right. And how could it have not been searched? Right. Because it was only so close. a few. It was so close to and was he, where Droopy had does been Does that spotted. mean he maybe was holding them captive? And then after the search looked like it was fizzling out, then oh. brought them and killed them. Oh, that's but, like, an interesting why hold theory. them captive if you're yeah. not going to try to get money for them? It's, it's just so it's crazy. It's very strange. And especially being... What really caught my eye was how where they were found was only six and a half miles from the campsite. And that spotting of Droopy was at six miles. Now, yeah, I don't know if so it's the exact same six miles, but it was in the wilderness direction. You know, why, it wasn't and why would the they road. let the dog go, though? You know, like or was the dog following them? No, they were just people were just out hiking. And this dog was just like on the move. No, I'm saying like, why would the person that captured them bring the dog or did he oh not? i'm and sure he just followed, followed. yeah, yeah. I, I would assume the dog just it's followed so and was chill because like part of me thinks oh they might have still been alive when the search was started yeah maybe and then they moved them i feel like there are so many possibilities and variables that just there's just never going to be a yeah, way of knowing I but know. it's so scary just the idea of a whole family and and to not rob and to take a baby and a child, like you know, so some of the many biggest true crime mysteries involve entire families. Yeah, the ones that are just unsolved for years and well, years. Well, and it's so rare. Yeah, because it's you would think if someone, if there's like a bad guy in the area, and he's watching his family or whatever, if he was going to do something, logic and statistics would say it would have been while. Richard and David were at the store mm-hmm. and while Belinda was just very vulnerable in a swimsuit well maybe it started with a that baby way. maybe they walked in on it oh right and then the Could family have. was taken yeah I mean yeah. there are so many scenarios oh yeah here. they don't even have the timeline they just know between nine o'clock that getting milk sighting. and potentially that couple from LA yeah. that saw the three adults in the truck but even that it's like who knows if that even has a factor yeah and, wow. and, you know, when things happen, you can easily kind of change the tone of things. Not to say that they were mistaken, because in my gut, I'm like, oh, that was maybe them. But yeah, when you're like, oh, now that I know that thing happened, I saw somebody very creepy. Mm-hmm. You know, when really you just saw them and you're like, hmm, I don't know. They're oh, that. yeah, it gets creepy. Yeah, after exactly. You think about it. Wow. So, that's I mean, that's sad. It's very sad. Yeah. So this is this was just to focus on their story and what happened and just so much effort went into finding them. 
And, and I'm glad they did find them. I oh yeah, that would be so awful, even more. Even awful. though it's still like it's just as big a mystery, at least they found them. And right, and it's like you always, rest. yeah, exactly. You always want to be able to like lay the family to rest and know that like okay, we have them now. That person doesn't have them anymore. But it's it's a baffling one. So uh, next week I'll be presenting uh, Dwayne's history. And the reasons behind the theories that he may have been involved. I just invite you to everything we're doing. <laughs> But feel free to give you other ideas. That's right. I'll take a different He said it'd be better for my thumbs, but I think he underestimates the width of my thumbs. The size of your thumbs. The circumference of your thumbs. And then if I have a nail, then it has to go in there. I know. I'm luckily getting these talons shaved down tomorrow. They're hardcore. They're cute, though. I got to trim my bush and my nails. My bush and my nails are going away. I'll be it? five pounds lighter. Oh my god! Let me keep the clippings. I'll make you one of those uh, rock rock Sorry, people my... with the hair, like that one hairstylist I went to. Did I ever tell you about that? No. What? what? Well, when he asked me my favorite dystopian book, I <laughs> I sent him six. The romance. And I said one of them was Station Eleven, and he said he Ooh. had a nerdgasm over that. <laughs> uh, turtle time. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, I love a here. hunting, a humping turtle. Humping yeah, turtles little... always get me worked up. You sound so intelligent, but then your bloopers make you sound. So, oh, it's like, I'm oh, sorry. Yes, you because... don't want to know we're real people. Yeah, you're not allowed to have fun <laughs> if you talk yeah. serious things. More or be like different, have different aspects of your personality. Mm-hmm. Or, yeah, or, yeah. Like the way that you express yourself. Be multifaceted. No, we record. We record like this. This no. is oh, our. And we this never is make my a joke until we're done. Personality. <laughs> It was shocking, and he's great on it. Like I love him. He's so Kieran funny. Kieran Ah! Do not put that on the end of the episode. I'm so sorry. I forgot what we were doing here. What are we doing? I'm flirting and, and listening. Yeah, and it's you not are. going You're well. Flirt. You're feeling flirty and sexy. Flirting about books. <laughs> like a That's real why you're nerd. so horny. What a nerd. He can turn my page anytime. He said we can have our own book club as long as he licks his fingers first. You rhetorical bitch. <laughs> oh, it was comforting. Um, can you go back? <laughs> <laughs> that actually didn't sound good. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm can, did you hear asshole. that? Did you hear that in Leave your headphones that it didn't sound good? I'm sorry I said. <laughs> Golly. <laughs> I'd rather be called out than sound bad. Walking down from the road toward the campsite. Campsite. Walking down the... Well, la, la. From, Nothing makes, from the road. makes okay. a line redo better than mocking your own yeah. line. <laughs> Did I say that? I do that all the time. <laughs> oh, yeah. How is your wonky, nasty yeah. elbow? It feels like a giant bruise, but it takes like months for <sighs> ursitis to heal. But you're so. keeping your arm, right? You're good? Yeah. So far, no amputation okay. scheduled. That's a plus. AM, that they would have the light they needed. Do that again. <laughs> <laughs> that... No, made no sense. Can you read that sentence to me aloud? Um, she just did. What, <laughs> and what we say shall go. Where did you come from? Where did you go? That's <laughs> all I could hear in my head that entire time. He regretted that the full scale scare 
That it scared him. It scared him real good. To do it forever, but everybody. Everybody get her. Everybody. Well, I'm Emily Jean. <laughs> oh my God. Nice to meet you. <laughs> I'm Joshua Jean. Oh my God. I'm Jean Jean. Ooh. Both, both variations. I love jeans on jeans. Oh God. Rub them jeans on each other. It all comes back around. Friction. Murder in the Rain is a Cascade Media production, written, hosted, and edited by Josh McCullough, Emily Rowney, and Alicia Holland. Feel free to email us at murderintherain at gmail.com or through our website, murderintherain.com. For as little as a dollar a month, you can subscribe on Patreon to get exclusive access to ad-free and older episodes. For only $5, you can access Patreon-exclusive episodes and content. For more of us, be sure to follow on all the socials, listen to Josh and Alicia on their other show, Always Be My Sisters, and follow Emily on TikTok at M underscore Murder in the Rain. And suck my balls. <laughs> <laughs>